Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and it's a very warm welcome to a new member of the book club, Chris Honeyset. Chris, welcome to the book club. Hello. So, Chris, you know how we start with new members always is the 2008 origin story. Tell us about your first experiences with comics and the prog in particular. Well, I've kind of read a bit, you know, the dandy and the bin, or there was always that comic, you know, issues lying around the house. But it was in, I was in my parents' living room in Middlesbrough in 1978, and I was about eight years old, seven or eight years old. And my two older brothers were there, and they're about 14, 15. And so we were all basically the target audience. And I've never really taken notice of what they were reading. One says to the other, is there anything good in the comic this week? It's like the comic, you know, not a comic, the comic. And the other one says, yes, Mac 1 dies. And my eight-year-old ears prick up. This sounds fantastic. You know, a little bloodthirsty eight-year-old, somebody dying in a comic sounds great fun. And I asked if I could read it. And they kind of threw it over once it finished with it. And I picked it up and my tiny mind was blown. And this is Prog 64. So this is... Uh, Dan Dare is exactly where we're at in the um, in, in the book we're going to cover. But we've also got Judge Dredd and the Cursed Earth. We've got um, Death Planet, which I, you know, has been forgotten about, but I really loved. And what else was there? There was, um, oh, Inferno, which was just, you know, brilliantly violent, especially if you'd never heard of Rollerball, and that kind of came to me later on. But I had seen Star Wars. So, you know, I was very much this, 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 I mean, so 2008 was targeted at me, you know, these Star Wars fans, because this double whammy of Star Wars in 2008 hitting an eight-year-old is just, you know, mind-blowing. It was brilliant. And it had this amazing cover, this, um, and I believe it was um, uh, Kevin O'Neill did it. But it's, it's, it, it, it's unique in all, in all of the, co- the covers, in that it's just typographic. It's just three letters in black and white, UFO. Which is obviously reference is reference not just to the Mac One story where he's um, saving an alien from from the army uh, and makes his most noble ultimate sacrifice in doing so. And I don't think that's a spoiler because we've already covered the fact that he dies. <laughs> and he um, uh, and and obviously ca- cashing in as two thousand years want to do on close encounters of a third kind, which was you know Spielberg's film that came out that year. So, yeah, that was it. That was my first um, introduction to the prog. And it was just, it's been there in my life ever since, to a greater or lesser extent. Fantastic stuff. And you've mentioned already one of the characters who appears in that prog, and it's those stories we're going to be talking about. Tell us what the book is you've chosen for the book club. This is, like, it's a big, hefty, quite beautiful book in front of me. Uh, It's Dan Dare, uh, Volume 2 by Laura Finlay Dane Gibbons and it's yeah it's it covers his latter run in 2000 AD the um the lost worlds and the son of evil and a couple of the little bits tagged on the end to make up the um the space which uh, <laughs> which perhaps not well just aren't as good as the main thrust of the book but it's, you know it's it's the stories rocket along they really do. They really do. There's a tremendous amount of action going on all the time. And that was the appeal. But mostly, I mean, I would just recommend this book to anybody, but Dave Gibbons art. Yeah. Because it's just superb. It's just brilliant. It's up there with anything 2000 Days has published. It really is. It's just fabulous. And the other reason I covered this book is because I think you've done everything else. <laughs> I mean, it was like, what, what, what is there? 
you know. Um, but, you know, and I, I love this iteration of Dare in the Lost World. He's a space commander on his five-year mission to explore strange new worlds and seek out new civilizations. You know, it's a complete... I think there was a, there were a bit of a loss of what to do with Dan Dare. Um, and so they basically made him into Captain Kirk uh, with a British accent. You know, and I, again, I kind of rediscovered... Star Trek on reruns because it's always on TV in the 1970s, the original series with Captain Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And I loved that. And I, you know, I loved, I was just a big sci fi head. You know, I love Space 1999 and I love Blake Seven. And uh, yeah, and also, I mean, the thing you look, you go through this book, there's something like John Wagner said about dread. They eat up bad guys, they eat up uh, antagonists all the time. And this does, this gets through so many. <laughs> different, you know, alien species and, and, and battles and, and, and scenarios. You, just, you know, it, it, it's almost, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed that comics work as well as they do, but this this does really, really, really well in keeping the energy going all the time, every every three every three episodes, a new, new bad guy, new planet, a new this. I mean, it helps that you can, there's this constant reinvention. And I think that 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 helps the writers. They tell you know we can always wrap this really quickly if it's not really working out, and then we can move on to something else. But it's really hard to write something this compact in six pages and keep the energy going and, and keep it and make it consistent. You know, there's a great you know there's they, they tend to deal with the same few characters all the time, and I think that helps uh, a lot in the storytelling. What it doesn't have, what it doesn't have, is there's very little humour. I mean, there's quite heavy-handed attempts at humour. They don't really, you know, there's no satire, there's no social commentary in any of this. It just accepts this is how things are. And that in itself is, even back then in 2018, that's quite an outlier. That's, you know, it really does. It's just all about the action. There's no, uh, there's nothing beyond that at all. And I think that is where you go, where does it fall down? That's where it falls down. Because uh, 2008 was always about it's no, it's very you know speaking truth to power all the time, and I think that's that. If it any, I mean, I, yeah, it, that is where it falls down. But it's still worth reading. It really is absolutely worth reading. So it's a lovely big hardback from Rebellion in 2016. Mm. Uh, as you say, writers Chris Lauder writing as Jack Adrian, Tom Tully, Jerry Finley Day. Uh, Roy Preston and Nick Lander are in there. Artists, we're going to be talking about Dave Gibbons a lot, but there's also some Brian Lewis, Gary Leach and Trevor Gorin. Uh, lettering, yes. Dave Gibbons getting the second check for lettering most of his work, but there's some... Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, edited by Steve McManus at the time. Stories from 1978 to 1980, progs 52 to 85, which is where about you know where you jump on. 109 to 126 and then of course as you say there's a few little annual and special stories at the end of this book which i don't think we're going to spend any time on because they're not very good basically they're, they're awful i mean they, 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 i mean if, if not if they if they serve one purpose their purpose is to show just how brilliant the rest of the stories are yeah. and they really do i mean the contrast between them i mean the stuff the filler at the back of the book wouldn't pass i mean presumably there were put in annuals i think they tell us as that much but they shouldn't be in the annuals but then i used to, I, um, I used to uh, chat with a guy who worked uh, it's one of the bodgers on 2018 for a while uh, as part of the ipc group and he said you know it was all just thrown together it was just everything it was it was good money because they, they got 
freelance shift on top of their regular pay package to put the angles together. And they were just, but it was just pulled in from what we've got lying around, what can we throw in? You know, really was. I mean, and, you know, when you're eight years old, you buy the annual because it's just stuff. You know, it's just more stuff. But really, the quality shouldn't, shouldn't have even qualified as an annual. I mean, presumably they paid for it and they thought, we can't publish it, but we'll hold it. <laughs> we'll use it at some point, you know, and that's what they would do. They stuff it into the annual. Really, it's, they're, they're, they're really poor, mm. desperately poor. Okay, so before we get into the uh, the two sort of main storylines, um, let's judge the book by its cover, because there's both of the 2000 AD hardbacks. There's there's possibly issues with both the covers. This one is by Ian Kennedy, and I know you're not you're not particularly keen on this cover, are you? Oh, not the cover. No, look, Ian Kennedy is a brilliant artist. In fact, in the previous book, book one, and I went back and listened to the your very first podcast where you discussed the book one. And your guest is absolutely gushing about the amazing Ian Kennedy artwork. And he's absolutely right on all count. It's astonishing. You know, his use of colour and his, 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 his dynamism. But he, but he, was, he came, his background seemed to be in, he was brilliant at, um, at, at flying machines. And he did a lot of World War II stuff, spitfires and dogfights, and he excels at all that. And in this, uh, in, not in this book, the previous Dan Dare book, that's what we get. We get this aerial duel, this battle, the space battle, and the explosions are just gorgeous. So it's a real disappointment when we get to this cover, and it's the most dull, anodyne, badly constructed. I mean, it's not that his, you know, his brushstrokes are fantastic, and he can, you know, he can clearly paint and draw, but it doesn't excite you in any way you know i mean sondar's there sort of wandering off the stage right and dan dare presumably he's meant to be about to punch the mekon but what he seems to be doing is just actually saving him from falling off his little floating chair that he's got and then of all the <laughs> and then of all the monsters in it in the book it's the big monster is the big giant worm and it's kind of just in the background not doing anything not threatening anybody no one's reacting to it no, Sondar's wandering off. He's bored, and Dare and the Mekon have got their own little thing going on, and the big snake's just kind of wandering through in the background. <laughs> and this is—it's so uninspiring and flat and dull, and you, it certainly doesn't capture the excitement and the madness and the chaos of, or, or the variety of, of, of stuff going, aliens going on inside. And I think the first book does a better job. Because at least you've got this variety of faces, and there's dare pointing his gun at you. This is book one I'm talking about, and there's you know guys shouting in the background. And yeah, so this so oh, the first one's got all the all the variety and excitement, and uh, you know it does what a book cover should do, and it can to give you a glimpse of what's inside. And frankly, if I didn't know what was in book two, that cover doesn't inspire me to pick it up and read it, and, and certainly not buy it. You know, you can you know, you'd be hard pressed to kind of go, whoa, and, and you, you kind of wonder is was it commissioned that they had to use it by the time Ian Kenny delivered it? Was it just was it a second choice? Was it did the first artist drop out? You think well, Ian Kennedy's lead time must be pretty long for you know a full page cover art. Mm. 
So I don't, I honestly, I don't know. I'm a bit of a loss to explain. I would love to know what the creative decision-making process is. I suspect Ian Kenny delivered it and they said, well, well, we've paid for it. We've ordered it. We'll have to use it. But, you know, I think getting him to do it, you'd be better off having, you know, because there's plenty of space battles inside, <laughs> inside the book. You know, you could say, look, show him some Dave Gibbons, you know, the, the space fort and the eagle craft are brilliant. I love the little eagle craft that are flying around. Get in Kennedy to draw those things. Mm. Stick them on the cover. And then you've got a cover that, you know, you, you'd want to hang on a wall. You know, play the Ian Kennedy strengths. I mean, and, and that, this cover does, and it's, again, you know, I think he's a bad fit for whatever they were trying to do. And, you know, clearly, you know, in itself is lovely artwork, but it's just, it seems to be a bad fit. It doesn't seem to have a feel for the, the characters or, or, or the cover or anything. Okay, so um, that's the cover. Now, well, I'm going to ask you about Dan there as a comic book character, and then we're going to get on to talk about Dave Gibbons' black and white art inside. Mm. But before we do that, you've mentioned we've got sort of two main storylines. We've got two halves yes. of the book. Just yes. give us a quick, uh, very brief outline of what the two sort of stories and what the setup is, basically. Right. In the first uh, first half of the book, Dan Dare is a captain. He's very much Captain Kirk, basically. He's in charge of a large crew, this big space fort, this big clunky. Some people don't like the sp- design of the space fort. Personally, I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's just not like anything else. You know, clearly, you know... <laughs> Interesting, it's meant to be in space. You know, it does land on planets, but you think, no, the, the power involved to get that back into space again is not happening. It's the least aerodynamic thing ever. And so he's basically Captain Kirk. He's blasting across the galaxy, and he encounters aliens, and he shoots them. That's kind of... He, there's a bit of do-goody in there, little maybe, but most of the time, he's fighting his own men. <laughs> and you think... At least two different stories involve him fighting his own crew. You think, what kind of a captain are you that this happens to you twice? You know, having the same thing happen to the same guy twice. It's diehard in space, isn't it? And then, um, you know, he's running around all the, the, the duct tunnels and the corridors and things, fighting off this heavily armed crew that he's got that turned against him. Anyway, that's the first one. And that ends when he, um, and against the Star Trek, I think it's Star Trek, the motion picture, there's this... The space fort, which is huge, is then swallowed by this enormous alien spacecraft, which is going through the galaxy, just sucking up all kinds of different um, spaceships. And I'd like to talk about a bit about that specific stuff later on if I can. Anyway, so Dare loses loses his crew. He loses his um, his uh, space fort. He's cast adrift into space, and that's where it ends on, on a mini cliffhanger. And he's there. He's all alone on this bit of wreckage space wreckage space debris in the spacesuit what will happen to dan dare well what happens to dan dare is part two when out of the blue out of the green even comes the mekon and there he is uh dan dare's arch enemy from the planet venus who you know hasn't been seen in the prod for a long time and he the mekon despite being dare's arch enemy uh, he brainwashes Dare into thinking they're on the same size, uh, same side. Dan Dare is now a space ranger, space marshal, or something in this snazzy new uniform. And they go off to steal the uh, the Holy Grail. It's the the uh, what's it called? The Crystal of Life, which the Mekon needs to keep himself alive. And so Dare goes on, and, and basically Mekon steals it, and Dare realizes that this isn't. Oh, hang on! I'm the good guy, and he's the bad guy, and I've been helping the wrong team. He's then accused of being a traitor, and then he runs off 
to um, to Frank Hero's name. And that's where the book ends. You know, that's where Dan Dare famously ends in the comic. Dan Dare will be back soon. And I was like, good, I hope he does come back soon. And I'm still waiting. I didn't go as far as many readers and write into Tharg and say, where is Dan Dare coming back? But I certainly wanted him to come back. Because, I, you know, this, this script, this, this, I, I mean, I, I thought, I think the second half of the book is more interesting than the first, despite the fact that first is really a, 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 a massive adventure and really exciting. I think that the second one's got more interesting things to say, there's more interesting things going on, rather than just dare shooting stuff. You know, and, and I think is um, Dave Gibbons picks up on this in the thrill cast when he talks about day. He said, look, it's in the second one where we realize that he, uh, Meekum and Dare, they need each other. You know, very much like the Batman and Joker, which is the point Gibbons, the comparison Gibbons makes. They need each other because without the other one, how do you know the other one? The, the other one's got nothing to do, nothing to push against. You know, they define themselves by each other. Well, I think actually that's not quite, well, Gibbons not quite on the money there. Dare needs the Meekum. The Meekum's got plans. If Dare doesn't exist, the Mekon's out there going, I'm just going to go and control the universe or my nefarious plans or, you know, whatever it is I want to do. Dare's got nothing <laughs> without the Mekon. You know, without... And I think this is why various iterations of Dare through the years have failed because he doesn't have this inner motivation. You know, he's basically a hired, not a hired gun. He's like, go there and do that for us. But there's nothing deeper within. There's nothing... You no, know, he's not Johnny Alpha who has, you know, all manner of reasons for, for what he's doing, what he does, or Dread, who, um, you know, has all has reasons for doing what he does. Uh, and those two stories, and this is those two stories, I mean, Dread is at its best an exploration of the criminal justice system. It's not about Dread at all. It's about criminal justice and how it affects citizens, democracy and all these things. You know, it's an adventure story. You know, I mean, they, they get your death warning to and just offing citizens at left, right and centre. But at its best, it's about something. And uh, Johnny Alpha and Strontium Dog, at its best, is about um, civil rights and, and how we treat uh, our, our, our fellow people. And there's nothing about him there, really. There's nothing at all. He's just unthinking, just unthinking, basically, isn't he? And that is, that is why the second book is better, because it introduces this aspect of a wider world. And then you start getting, getting things like government corruption involved, and you get destitution, you get... Uh, and, and, you know, the, you see the on this floating satellite called Topsoil, we see, you know, social problems just in the periphery. And, and, and this is all new. You know, there is this middle-class character who's clearly just been insulated by this the whole time. Or he just looks down on them, kind of unthinkingly. So, oh, these, the, the, you know, he just goes, oh, these are, these, these are poor people. You know, they're beneath me. That's kind of, you know, Fred, uh, the dare's middle-class uh, background coming through. And... And those are the things that make it interesting. All of a sudden, there's this hinterland coming into the story. And that is why the second part is more interesting, because Dare in himself is not a terribly interesting character. He's a bit of an empty vessel, I find. And I think that's why subsequent uh, versions of him always struggle, because unless he's, he, unless he's basically... Uh, a, a gun of, 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 of the British Empire going to subjugate peoples, then it, there's no reason for them to exist. So Dan Dare is a comic book character, you know, created by Frank Hampson 1950 for the Eagle. I like the fact that on uh, 
the 2000 AD Dander's space fort, um, or as Conrad from Space Spinner describes it, the battle action playset. Um, <laughs> they have the eagle logo on the ship. Yes. Which is nice. Um, did you have any experience with Dander from the you know the original Eagle stories at all? Have you come across those? No, well, no. I mean, well, I have, but I didn't at the time. I mean, uh, all that my first experience of Dare was in the prog, and my br- brothers had some old issues lying around, so they kind of went back to the Star Slayers. So I kind of had a bit of that in there as well. But no, it was only my, my dad found this this rather pretty excellent sort of large print version of collected compendium of all the original Eagle stories, the first year of them, that is. And it's a big, you know, it's nicely uh, put together and you go back and read it. And my problem is I don't have any experience of what else was being published at the time. So we hear a lot of how it was groundbreaking and the art was a big step forward and the story was very exciting. And I've really got, and I have to take that on trust. And I'm not saying that's not true. I just haven't been able to, you know, I, I, I have no experience of it myself. And the artwork, the Frank Hampson artwork, some of it is fabulous. You know, the, the particularly the tech and, and the flying machines. But really, but the design, although they're, they're beautiful in detail, they really are, you know, just kind of flying submarines in space. They really are these book writers of the 25th century. They, you know, they, they, these, the Jules Verne idea of when he, Jules Verne wrote a story about going to the moon. Basically, the spaceship was a, 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 a large bullet fired from an incredibly big gun. And that's kind of where these spaceships are. You know, they're sort of conicals in space. And that's fine. Uh, but also the... Um, the, the the art is very blocky. It's it, it's all it's occasional cut out floating head, but mostly it's set, it, it's all just different. It's all just squares. Everything's squared up. So maybe that was a breakthrough in style at the time. I don't know, but it's certainly compared to the Gibbons era. There, it it, it 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 it's kind of very staid. You know that that, that I think that's fair to say. Mm. Uh, yeah, but you know, and there's stuff going on in there. But it, it, it really is imperial than there fighting space Aztecs. You know, <laughs> that's, you know that's there's no other way of looking at it. You know, this is what he's doing. He's you know the extension of the British Empire, going around colonising people. The strange extension of the British Empire into space, as you say, that sort of middle class or upper middle upper middle class Dan Dare going out and. Um, encountering strange new worlds and in basically as you say in the first half of this book encountering strange new civilizations and mostly wiping them out yes yes <laughs> dan dare the genocidal space warrior um i i think that pat mills when he created 2080 one of his ideas was if we have dan dare then the dads might buy this comic for their sons um because Pat Mills, as we know, is interested in class in comic books. He's bet, yeah, I've heard that, yes. <laughs> and he is a strange, Dan there's a strangely, as you say, middle-class character without much social commentary um, throughout the stories. I'm guessing this is just, in a sense, the sort of relics of his imperial past. Well, it is, but it's a continuation of it as well. And that is, you know, that which is problematic. And it's, 
and it was the 1970s. They well, okay, it was 1970s, but you know this this idea of people, you know, a lot of sci-fi going all the way back to Jules Verne and people like Arthur Conan Doyle and Lost Worlds and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and you know, At the Earth's Core. All these they were basically all these stories were a bunch of North American, European, white blokes, upper middle class blokes, scientists and soldiers going around and conquering things. So we'd, we'd had this for 120 years, or at least 100 years of the same narrative. So to find it being repeated in 2008 is quite extraordinary because everything else wasn't doing that. Everything else was challenging the social norms. And Dan Dare is just repeating the, this, this narrative. And yes, I think there was a, a very much a financial imperative, marketing imperative, getting Dan in the prog, and I I understand that. And, they, and it, as always, and, and Pat Mills has talked about this. There was um, there's never enough time to do anything, so you're always against the clock trying to produce a new comic. So eventually, you go well. What we've got is what we have to publish. And I don't think. I mean, I think the only way. I mean, how would you update Dan Dare to be not what he is? And the only way to do it is to have done there, you're the bad guy. And I think, you know, you, you are a white imperialist subjugating other other uh, you know, races, species, and planets. So what you have to do, you have him as the bad guy who thinks he's the good guy, yeah. which essentially is what it is. But you, you can't do that from a marketing point of view in 1977 when the comic is launched. You really can't. And I also understand that. But it's just disappointing in terms of the prog. But I'm not sure the, it worked. As getting, yeah, I think it, getting Dan, in the, Dan Dare in the comic worked from marketing and the point of view. It got advertisers on board. It gave them something to hook into, and it gave a hook for the, the TV adverts and the rest of it. I don't think it worked for dads. You know, my dad didn't really read the comic. You know, his sons loved it. I loved it. My brothers loved it. But that was... Because of the, the violence, basically, it wasn't because of Dan. No, Dan. I mean, really, he is such a such an empty vessel. You just stick a different name on him, and he could be anybody. And it, but the adventures still work. There's nothing about Dan. There's nothing unique to Dan Dare that makes the Dave Gibbons stuff work. It is just it, it's the artwork and the stories and the adventure and the excitement and all that. that this propulsive energy that it's got is incredible. And just you rock it through the through the stories like you wouldn't believe. There's nothing intrinsically Dandarish about them. You know, it's changed his name. The stories are still brilliant. Yeah. And as you say, it does, in terms of the writing, mostly from uh, Chris Lauder and uh, Tom Tully, it does rock it along, literally. There is no moment to catch your breath or for Dandare to catch his breath because it's from one encounter to the next. Um, what did you think, by the way, of when he becomes the space marshal with the snazzy u- new uniform and eventually gets the cosmic claw weird? Well, the, 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 well, let's, let, well, let's deal with the cosmic claw first. The cosmic claw, I didn't mind. Didn't mind at all, really. I mean, why not? You know, it, it, it's because I don't have this affinity with the 1950s down there. Right, at, least he, at least the character seems to be moving forward and doing something else. You know, the, the fort's been destroyed. You can't go back and carry on the Lost World story. It's got to go somewhere. So why not the Cosmic Claw? It's no more stupid than anything else. But there's also this lovely historical this British comics thing. There was a comic character in the 60s called the Steel Claw. which is a le- Now, that was written by Tom Tully, who also you know, was there when writing the, the Cosmic Claw. So I think he just went to his own back catalogue and said, what can, how can I do? What, what, what has worked before? And the, the Steel Claw was massively popular massively popular. Now, here's a little thing. 
the Steel Claw pops up in an Alan Moore written uh, comic series called Albion, sort of a few years later, which I've not read, but I know he, he pops up in it. Now, the guy who produced, who edited and put together my 1950s Dande Compendium, the guy called, um, I forget his name, he's called Mike Higgs, also pops up in that same story by Alan Moore in Albion. So there's a little bit of, you know, it's, I mean, Alan Moore is famous for putting all this stuff in there. But, I mean, that was, that was just a nice touch. But I, I, I don't mind the Cosmoglobe. It's like, why not? It's, it's no, more, no more weird than anything else going on in 2018. What, you know, and the, the, the new uniform, I kind of like the new uniform, the big star splash, and it, it looks super futuristic. You know, Dan Dare's gone from, a, you know, he's, he's gone for a bit less something to a bit more something else. You know, he's a bit, and I liked it. You know, I don't understand the um, appropriate that it gets. I mean, there is a beautiful thing in Prog 500 uh, where, and which, and there's a six-page story where all the characters come out in detail and they all have their little whinge about their own little character. And there's Dan Dare sat in the corner of some bar with a bottle of beer drowning his sorrows. You know, ruining the day, they gave me a cosmic claw and turned him into a superhero. You know, and it's, it's a little, little sort of like throwaway little moment. But yeah, I mean, I like the cosmic. Why not? You know, if you can have Judge Red firing six times, you know, he's already had a lightsaber in the previous book. Let's not forget. You know, he's not defined by his by his by his by his gun by his six different types of bullets and there's a palm print coded to him. You know, you have to move him on, so why not? And if anybody's looking for a choice of book to pick for the book club, Albion and Steel Claw are still up for grabs, I would say. Is, is there a compendium of Steel Claw kicking around? Yeah, Rebellion has put out some collections from the Treasury of British Comics of the Steel Claw recently. I've got to think of one of them on the shelf here, uh, which I could probably find in a moment. Um, I know Brian Bolland has done the cover for at least one of them. Um, so that is available. Albion, I think, is slightly harder to get hold of these days, but we'll see. I'm just going to turn you to the back of the book now, Chris, because Prog 126, yes. Air, as you've said already, just sort of ends with a cliffhanger. Yes, yes. Tharg announces that Dan will be taking a break indefinitely. <laughs> he lies. <laughs> and then we've got David McDonald's article at the back of the book, which goes, explores in some... You know, in, in some detail, some of the reasons why this happened. I mean, just yeah. on quickly, what was going on with Dan Dare in the early 80s? Well, there was a, there, uh, this moot, the, the big thing seemed to be this mooted TV programme, TV show that was meant to be starring uh, one of the Fox brothers the yeah. from the act, acting dynasty. And because of this, the TV company wanted the 1950s version, the one that everybody seemed to know about. They definitely didn't want this all new action uh, Dan Dare from the 1980s, which the prog was r- running. And so the comic version got sacrificed on the altar of the TV money, it is what happened. They said, right, okay, fine. Let's keep the, the money's all in TV. Let's keep the TV guys happy. You've got to get rid of this out, out of the prog. And of course, the TV program fell apart and uh, it never happened. And neither did Dan Dare. And this, because the TV saga dragged on for ages, uh, not going anywhere, then the problem moved on essentially there's also interesting stuff in there about um dave gibbons is saying he wanted to phase out dan dare anywhere at the end of the of this run you get this space pirate called morag turning up uh who's a woman in the prom which even then was still quite rare and they wanted to make her 
the the central character kind of phased down out of his own strip, which would have been interesting. They also say that Dandere was falling behind. It failed to capture, I'll read it out, it failed to capture the popularity that Just Red, Strontium Dog, and ABC Warriors were generating. Now, if you look at the running order of the program when Dandere made his last appearance, it's pretty ropey stuff. And you think, how, yeah, but there's two issues. There's two issues with the poll thing, with the idea, because every week they had the readers write in and list in popularity. There's, there's two issues with this. The first one is, well, at the time, he was up against um, what we had. We had a one-off Judge Dredd story called John Cooper, illustrated by John Cooper, called The Guinea Pig. That changed the law, which basically changed the law in Mega City 1 or against experimenting lab, lab animals. Now, that's it's a decent one of story, like John Cooper's art. It's it's not the cursed earth. It's not just death. You know, it's not. It's not. You know, most people won't remember it. It's decent, but not top tier dread. Now we do have Mike McMahon drawing the ABC Warriors with Hammerstein going around collecting the Magnificent Seven. Now, that's just outstanding. That's just the best thing in the comic that week. Now, well, fair enough. But Dan Day is not as good as that. But not many things are. It's a bit unfair to say you're not as good as that. We have Disaster 1990, which is Bill Savage's lamentable comeback, a prequel, in fact. It's Bill Savage's prequel story. Not very good. And we have Project Overkill, which had some nice artwork, but everyone's forgotten it. And then we have Dan Dare. Dan Dare is, at worst, the third best thing in the comic, in a fairly weak comic at that. So, yeah, you know, Strutting Dog wasn't even there, and Dread wasn't firing on all cylinders, though, of course, Dread will always come back. You know, brilliantly. But to say you're the third best behind Dread and ABC Warriors, that's the problem with the poll. It's like, well, that's not a bad place to be. You know, most most trips will think, I would love to be third place behind Dread and MacMahon's ABC Warriors. And the other thing, there are times in the prog, I mean, the few and far between, but I'm thinking around the prog 500 time, when every single strip was on fire, absolutely just, just killing it every single week. Now, if you're, what do you do if, you, if, if, if the fifth place strip in popularity gets killed off because you're in fifth place by default, you're for the chop? Well, if every ship is on fire, that, you're killing off good stuff. It doesn't make any sense, does it? And Dan Dare, the Silent Evil may have not been as popular as The Lost World, but you're still better than most of the stuff in the prog at that time. Yes, you know, and... and and he, and he got, I think mean, the first time he got killed off, he got killed off for, um, um, I can't remember, but he, he got killed off this time for Wolfie Smith. I mean, how, I mean, this is a nonsense, isn't it? He got killed off for Wolfie, but also Black Hawk, and I quite like Black Hawk, but it wasn't a terribly great fit for 2018. This uh, time traveling uh, Roman slave warrior gladiator. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I kind of liked it, but it wasn't always a great fit. Wolfie Smith, which I also kind of enjoyed. You cannot tell me that that is anywhere near as good as this Dave Gibbons Dan Dare. It's nonsense to say that. It's just ridiculous. So the reason, the various reasons have been put forward as to uh, why Dare uh, got kicked out. And I think it came down to somebody upstairs didn't like him. They wanted the they wanted the they wanted the money instead, and then uh, there was you know probably some sort of regime change regime change happened in the prog and new things developed. I mean, Dave Gibbons, 
didn't have much to do in the fog after this. And that's an absolute travesty. Hmm. He, he came back and did uh, the first uh, issue of uh, Rogue Trooper, which is stunning. He kicked that off. Uh, and there's a few future shocks kicking around, but he basically went off, um, and much to the detriment of the prawn. Well, let's talk about Dave Gibbons. We've covered a lot of ground, but let's get to the artwork. <laughs> I think we'll agree is one of the main reasons to buy this book. Tell us yes. what you made of Dave Gibbons' black and white artwork, and also particularly about the progression as it goes through this book. Well, I don't see a progression. Now, I see a progression from book one through to book two. I think in book one, he's finding his feet. Book two kicks off all cylinders firing. It's, it's just there. The, the idea is that, you know, I mean, all artists develop us through their career. But if you say, well, he develops, I don't think, I don't think he does. I think he's there. The dare is fully formed. His world is fully formed. The tech is fully formed. The aliens come in all, you know, vast myriad of, of geysers. The whole thing is a... Fully realized, fully realized universe, and Dave Gibbons creates the whole thing, and new places and aliens and bad guys every week. I don't think he develops. I think he's just stretching. Because to say he develops, I think, could be misconstrued as not very good at the beginning and better at the end. And that's just not the case. He's brilliant at the beginning, he's brilliant at the end, and he's astounding all the way through. Uh, and... and and I've got to say this about Dave Gibbons. Now, on the podcast, you've talked a lot about the holy trinity of 2000 AD artists. Yeah. They really have. Now, and that's the, that on one level is fair enough. You've got Carlos Esquerra, who, you know, uh, you've got Brian Bolland. Let's start with Brian. Brian Bolland is this classically trained, beautiful illustrative work who's just awesome, you know, amazing. And then you've got Carlos Esquerra, who's just out there in his own, and nobody draws like Carlos Esquerra. Except that the other member of the Trinity, Mac McMahon, who was hired because he could draw like Carl Sestera at the age of 19. No, that's just outrageous. You shouldn't be able to be able to copy Carl Sestera. I mean, nobody can copy a Carl Sestera anyway. Apart from Mike Mahon, he did it out of art school. And then he went on to develop in all manner of different styles. You know, Mike McMahon's not just the greatest British comic artist of the tw late 20th century. He's the greatest British artist of the late 20th century. It's just the, the, the depth and range of his constantly evolving style just blows my mind. Now, they're the Holy Trinity, and I think Dave Gibbons is up there with them. He's just as good. But for, he's not considered to be part of that, that, that hierarchy, that, that top tier. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is Gibbons never had any... I, don't think, I think he may have touched on Dread once or twice, but, but if you're not Dread, and you're not drawing Dread on a semi-regular basis, then you're not going to be considered an all-time great. Seems to be this unspoken attitude. Carlos created him, drew the Apocalypse War and came back to him and did amazing stuff. Bolland, uh, McMahon drew the Cursed Earth, which is just our, still my favourite Dread story. Dread is the hero is my favourite Dread. We all know he isn't, but there, there at that time. You know, eight years old, nature of all boys need heroes, and there he was being heroic. And they and they both drew dread later on, but Gibbons never did. And I think because he never drew dread, he's never seen. It was, it was no, it's, it's kind of this conspiracy of oh, why didn't he draw it? Was he not good enough? Maybe he's not good enough to draw. You know, loads of good and bad arts have drawn dread. He obviously was doing Inferno and Dan Dare and, and Road Trooper, and you know, pretty good stuff. You know, and I think the other thing he. Um, the other reason 
he's not quite up there, considered to be up there, which is up there with the other three, is that he has a very, very accessible style. You know, you in in fact, you know, because I'm, I'm a, a graphic designer, I can draw. I can't draw as well as these guys. That would be insane. But I, you know, but I can, you know, I can put a pen to the paper. And and it was very much reading the prog that encouraged me to to put pen to paper. Now, in my dreams, I'm not daft enough to think I can draw like Brian Bolland. I'm not daft enough to think I can draw like Carlos Scarra. I'm not daft enough to think I can draw like Mike McMahon. However. What Dave Gibbons' style does, and he's got a lot in common with Steve Dillon, is that they have this wonderful, accessible style. So you think you might, if you practice, you may one day be able to draw like them. You can't, and you won't be able to, but he allows you to fool yourself to think you might. Right. Now, and that accessibility is, I think, what people, you know, which is an absolute gift. But I think that is what why people they make it look easy and therefore they undervalue it. Right. And I think that's what happens with Dave Gibbons. Right. I think he's. But you know, if you look at his career, and you think this is the guy who co-created Watchmen, if he had done nothing else in his career except co-create Watchmen, that is god tier level stuff out there, and his place in the pantheon of comic greats would be assured. He's done far more than that, but if he only did that, you know, legendary status is assured. So I'm, I, I, I you know, I, I want this, the fight back for Dave Gibbons starts here, you know, all on board the Dave Gibbons train to be the fourth wheel of the Holy Trinity. <laughs> and you mentioned Watchmen because Garth Ennis in his introduction points out that there's a, a monster in the first part of this book called Signa. From the ice planet. Yes. There's a space squid, basically. Yeah, I mean, I mean, do we, is it official? Is that is that canon? Is it the same one? Is it the same species that ends up the the, the last panel of Watchmen? Or uh, yeah, or is it not? I mean, it's it's a lovely. I, I mean, I, yeah, you can't. I mean, that was. I mean, that interestingly, that that Sigma story was the, in Frog sixty four. So that was my first uh, Dan Dare ex, uh, exposure. Yeah. And I'd love to know if it is intended to be some sort of connected universe, because the idea that Watchmen is part of this broader Dante universe is, uh, tickles me. Yes. <laughs> so I, I like to think it is. It tickles us to notice uh, Dave Gibbons doing an early space squid, at least. Um, and you mentioned, you know, we're not quite sure whether Dante is a heroic figure, but he's certainly drawn very heroically by Dave um, the space marshal uniform is great with the cosmic claw. Yeah. His hair is getting very sort of 1970s Clint Eastwood. Uh, well, I think he starts off. I think he starts off Clint Eastwood in the Lost Worlds, but he's a bit more sort of Gil Garrard in, uh, oh, in right. the later. Okay. Yeah, I, I think they've kind of gone for you know Book of Roger's 25th Century, the TV series at the time. Yeah, you know, he, he's a bit more uh, matinee idol, isn't he? Yeah, um, and he's still yeah, got, of course, the recognisable hooked eyebrows. You can't, you can't be Dan Dare without the eyebrow. I mean, that, yeah, but that's it. You, you, you can literally, you know, take Dan Dare. What, what is his defining feature? Well, it's not his character; it's his eyebrow. <laughs> you know, that's that's how poorly written this guy generally is. You know how how poorly formed he is. He can yeah. be condensed to an eyebrow. You know, or the cosmic claw. You know, then I, given the two, I'd rather have the cosmic claw. But I mean, but there's nothing Gibbons can do because you know he's brilliant at tech. He's brilliant at, 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 at figures. He's brilliant at um, faces. He's brilliant at action. He's just, um, but you know, he's not. 
maybe it's a good time to talk about the other artists in the book because we do get in the Lost World. In fact, the end of the Lost World is mostly drawn by, and you can help me out here. Here we go. Yeah, Goring and Leech together. Yeah, and it's a very, and I think they've done the sensible thing. Rather than get somebody who could, you know, try an ape gibbon style, pardon the pun there, sort of aping a gibbon, and the you've got uh, this much more moody style coming here, lots of deep, rich shadows, and I think it works really, really well. And I like uh, the, the contrast is brilliant. There's also those lovely little things that have been slipped in at three at one point when Dare's crew has been. Um, uh, have been massacred. Uh, there's these three guys who have been uh, crucified, and they are, um, I think we find the page, but it's O'Neill and Landau and somebody. <laughs> it's like it's two... Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, the editorial team being, yeah. being crucified. I, I wonder who's setting scores there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, um... uh, but also, and they, now this is never gets, never gets mentioned anywhere, right? So here we are in the Lost Worlds, and there's a doomsday machine. And this is the, back in the Lost World story. This giant spacecraft has swallowed up Dare's ship. And it's full of other spaceships. Right? Lots yeah. of... Uh, right, now, get this. This is at the time when 2000 AD has been sued for copyright infringement in, for the Judge Dredd Cursed Earth for using things like the Jolly Green Giant and Alka-Seltzer and the, the famously McDonald's and, and, and Burger King. The cop for, uh, however, littered in this book... <laughs> Is there's a Starship Enterprise, there's a Thunderbird, there's a Maria, the robot from um, uh, Metropolis, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, there's a, a 1990 spacecraft, a 1999 sp- Eagle spacecraft, there's a Millennium Falcon in there. I think if, if they're getting sued by McDonald's, you know, why isn't the famously litigious Lucasfilm all over this? It's quite extraordinary that at the very same time they're being sued, the left hand's being sued, the right hand is sort of wandering off going, yeah, let's get some more, <laughs> more copyright material in here. It's, I re- you know, stuff in there. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I remember being, as a, an eight-year-old, it was fantastic. Ooh, Millennium Falcon. Ooh, look, I can see a bit of an X-Wing fighter down there. You know, there, there's, all, there's all this great stuff going on in the background of this. But yeah, that, but I like that Gordon Leach art style. I mean, Leach turned up uh, on um, a couple of two, uh, Judge Dredd stories as well. I kind of like his style there and the occasional future shock. Yeah. He, was, he brought something different. Astonishing to see those uh, famous spacecraft in the background. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, they're, they're, yeah, they're unmistakable, aren't they? Absolutely unmistakable. Before we get to the Grail Page game, uh, well, mm. I guess we're going to be talking about Dave Gibbons again. But what about your favourite episodes <laughs> from this second volume of Dan Dare Stories? What's right, your well, favourite? Oh, um, well, I really like the mutiny ones where he's, he's on the run. There's also something interesting about, you know, being, when Dan Dare's all alone and being chased around the inside of his spaceship, partly because I like the inside of spaceships. You know, hiding the in you know, in the ducks panels and all this kind of thing, and so yeah, the the, the mutiny ones. There's two of them. One where there's a doppelganger episode where there's been impersonated uh, by this uh, vegetable, vegetable, a pod plant vegetable which assumes human form. Now again, this is taken straight from the Invasion of Body Snatchers, 1950s film, and uh, which is all about uh, the infiltration of. Uh, of America by the Soviet Union, you know, it, it, that's, it's a wonderful 
um, social political allegory. But there's none of that in 2008. Well, it's not in Dandere anyway. You know, no, it's, no, it's just a pod plant. He's just wanted to copy you. You know, there's not again. Once again, there's nothing deeper. Whereas in a different strip, something would be made of that. I think, especially in 2008. Nevertheless, it's a really good story because there is Dandere facing off against himself, and again, it allows some really good artwork. You know, I think every villain uh, needs sooner or later every major villain. Uh, the hero, sorry, comes up against himself, don't they? You know, Judge Dredd is Judge Dredd, and Sherlock Holmes is Moriarty, and uh, yeah, the Batman is a Joker. They need they need their opposite. And to come up against literally yourself is great fun. You know, Superman did it. Superman 3 comes against bad Superman. It's, you know, it's great fun. So, yeah, I really love the Dare uh, going against himself. And then the mutiny one where he's running around the ship and everyone's um, – they just they're busy. His crew have had enough, and I can't blame them. <laughs> really you know they're leading into one script after another the, the numbers get whittled down and eventually one goes look you're just not a very good commander are you there and you kind of thinking yeah well maybe there's some merit in that you know <laughs> <laughs> anyway so there, there he ends up and again it allows for some brilliant you know the dropping down anti-gravity shoots and you get you know shooting each other and meanwhile there's a meteor storm outside which you know, which is adds to the tension. It's, it's all great stuff, and again, it just allows for some brilliant artwork by Dave Gibbons and the relentless, uh, ongoing demands of you know having a st- the story progress every week, uh, three, four, five pages, and just like blast it through. Okay, great stuff. Let's go back to the artwork then. Let's imagine yes. that the artwork is available and we could afford it. Which <laughs> Absolutely um, not. No, I, I'm. Guessing we're not going to go anywhere near the unnamed artists at the back of the book. Let's absolutely no, no, absolutely not. I mean, there is just so much. I mean, you could pick any one of them. I mean, I'd be, I'd be honoured to own any one of them. But I think there is, I think uh, the page that numbered. If you find the uh, Garden of Eden, page one, it's a battle scene. It's the opening uh, frame. So it's a full page artwork of the uh, Dander spaceport under attack by um, these aliens again. And it's just this amazing battle scene. It's got an amazing energy and depth of feel to it, and there's laser guns going off all over the place. And it's, you know, there's, it's just amazing to look at. You just look at it and go, how do you manage to get this sense of scale and, uh, and also movement and energy into th- th- this battle scene? It, it, it's just a brilliant composition. And I think I would have that one or the other one I've always loved. I, I remember one of the thrills of buying this this book was finding some, you know, cause I, I remember certain images from it. There's this great battle scene that takes place on the balcony in The Servant of Evil. And it's just this all out, I think it's more about a half page with other stuff going on underneath it. But it's just, you know, 20 or so people having this fight with laser weapons as they try to escape. And there's just people shooting each other, and the cosmic claws going off, and someone's got a whip, and it's just, and it's it's again, it's Gibbons just doing this brilliant uh, dynamic work, and I think I would have either of those two. Fantastic uh, stuff. There you uh, go. I'm looking at the Garden of Eden first page now, and it's, as yeah. you say, it's a slight wonder that they didn't ask Ian Kennedy to do something like that. <laughs> It seems it's such an open, missed open goal, doesn't it? You yeah. think, 
t- take that, Ian Kennedy. Do your version of it. You don't have to copy it. Compose it how you like, but go mad. And that that would have had me buying this this book every day of the week. You know, it, it's it's ex- <laughs> how to get this cover so wrong when there's so much good, great inspiration on the inside is baffling in the extreme. Yeah, strange. Oh well, anyway, but it's a wonderful page, and we will grant you that one, and also the battle sequence on the balcony from Servant of, uh, of Evil. Uh, yes, great stuff. Um, Thank I'm you. going to turn you to the first page of Servant of Evil when right, okay. returns to Prague 100, and then yes. he is on that piece of floating space wreckage of the battle fort uh, with the Eagle yeah. comic logo. Yes. And I sent you, I like this page, um, particularly because I heard the Dave Gibbons story that goes with it. Uh, Please tell. Well, I think it was the second London Super Comic Con, and there was a panel about Jack Kirby's artwork, and on the panel was Dave Gibbons and Jonathan Ross. Yeah. And Dave Gibbons told this story about him being in art class at school, drawing a man floating in space on a piece of space wreckage. And his art yeah. teacher asked him why he was drawing that, and he said it was because he'd seen it in a Jack Kirby comic. And I think the art teacher got slightly sniffy about comics, as art teachers were wont to do at that time. Yes, <laughs> yes. And years later, of course, Dave Gibbons wrote a piece for a, I think, for a book or um, a Jack, a book about Jack Kirby, possibly for a museum exhibition catalogue or something like that. Yeah, and. Um, the page is from a story called Space Garbage and shows a guy floating in space on a piece of space garbage. And, of course, to finish off the story, um, after he'd written this piece for this book about Jack Kirby, his agent said, you know that page you were going on about? It's up for sale. And so Dave Gibbons now owns that page by Jack Kirby. Oh, fantastic. And I will post both images when this uh, episode comes out because obviously he got to do his own homage to that by having Dan Dare floating in space. He's been floating in space for approximately 40 progs, I think, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time, yeah. How, where's his oxygen supply? Cause it's not on that deck, is it? You know. Um, <laughs> And it's the start of this new story by Tom Tully, and it's Dave Gibbons again. It's a wonderful piece of artwork. So I'm going to pick that one, and I'm going to yeah, post it, it, and I'll post the Jack Kirby image as well. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's the, the, the whole Eagle logo thing is fascinating because my only exp- exposure to that at this point, when I was eight years old, was it was on the Eagle Craft. And also it was the logo for the annual Eagle Comic Eagle Awards. Right. But I didn't put two and two together and make because I didn't really know about the Eagle Comics from the 1950s. So I thought, oh, yes, yeah, that's, that's the same logo as the Comic Awards. What's that to be? <laughs> Which one came first? You know, oh, did, did the, Eagle Awards co- the Eagle Awards must have come from Dan Dare. <laughs> Which kind of did, obviously, but there was the, uh, but yes, uh, that is an amazing picture. So the second Dan Dare hardback, the 2008 Years, Volume 2, uh, is available from the 2008 store, £30, still available in hardback, £9.99 digitally as ever. Um, we've talked about it. I mean, it's fascinating, not least for the, you know, the idea of the development of Dan Dare as a 2008 sort of hero or anti-hero, the sudden dramatic ending which you know the story that goes with it and then of course dave gibbon's superlative black and white artwork yeah um 
as you say, shortly before he basically crosses the pond and becomes part of the British invasion and gets to draw the American comics that he'd always uh, loved. Inspired by, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And fair play to him, you know, America's gain and and Britain's loss. Very much, yeah. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, Anything else from your notes before we move on to your own projects, Chris, that you wanted to say about Dan Dare Volume 2? Well, you did ask a question in uh, the, the preliminary email about is it the foremost British science fiction character? And I think the answer is a resounding no. Oh, right. Yeah, I, 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 I think he just isn't. I mean, he has longevity. I'll, I'll give him marks for longevity and certainly give him marks for the, the two volumes we've got here uh, because they are brilliant. They're, they're well, they are well worth buying, you know, particularly the second one. So maybe for the first one, buy them both. But he is just... There's no character there. There's no look. All, so all science fiction should look at or explore one of two ideas. One is the sense of self. What is it to be human? Which we get in iRobot and Blade Runner and everything else. And the other one, what is society? Which is you know Planet of the Apes and, and, and uh, Johnny Alpha, for example, or Halo Jones. And none of that is in Dante. Right. So uh, and that that that's the big problem. So. So, but I th- so if you're going to go for it, if you, if you the foremost British science fiction character, you're always going to come back to Judge Dredd. Always. I think there are others. I mean, uh, I, I have a particular soft spot for Nikolai, Dan- Nikolai Dante, uh, the, 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 the Russian uh, freebooter and smuggler and pirate, what have you. He was a brilliant, and particularly because it's a self-contained story, there's 12 volumes and that's it. And it's a brilliant, brilliant collection. I, I love Dante. Halo Jones, um, if it only we finished it, if only we'd finished the story, would probably be the greatest comic character, uh, British science fiction comic character, if we finished it. Then you've got Johnny Alpha, and then you've got Dread, and I think it's always going to be Dread. Right. Uh, to answer your question. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, That's yeah. great. Um, we'll stick them up there on our British science fiction comic characters, Mount Rushmore. Um, Fantastic. Dread, Dread is the main figure. Okay. Excellent stuff. So it's been great fun talking about Dan Dare. And it is a lovely hardback volume. They're both lovely hardbacks. Um, Fantastic to be able to have it all there in front of us. Um, I'm going to turn you to to, uh, guest projects, Chris. Tell us about Nemo's Fury. Right. Nemo's Fury is an interactive fiction game for smartphones uh, based on Jules Verne's classic sci-fi adventure, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And it's inspired by the game books of the 1980s by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone, such as The Warlock Firetop Mountain and Death Up Dungeon. And the brief was to create a game along those lines, a game book in a phone, basically. So I went in a way and I wrote it all and, and I've drawn it all. And it's got a combat system. And the idea is you, it's an app and you will download the app. It's free to download. And you will download the app and you will get to play the game book on your phone. Um, yeah. and, and taking you way through the story. Now, the story itself is follows relatively closely the plot of the book, in that you have there are three characters who are basically kidnapped by Captain Nemo, taken on this amazing on his submarine, the Nautilus, around the globe. And I've added an additional character, which is what you play, so you get to interact with all the characters in the book as you go along on this journey and then things are revealed as to what is going on, which I 
don't want to spoil because that would be the spoil the story. But it's great fun and it's exciting and, and the, the artwork's you know it doesn't compare with Dave Gibbons, but it's you know it's great for the draw and produce and that's in production at the moment because there's all sorts yeah techie things going on now. But it, yeah, it's great. I can't I can't wait to get it into uh, the shops onto people's Apple and Android devices in the near future. Right. So not in the not in the app store or the game store just yet but not yet no but sometime soon and I, I, i'd love to give you a better date but it's part, part of the process what can i tell you and in the in the meantime you can i presume go to nemosfury.com you can you can you can find the, the nemosfury.com or there is our facebook page or, or follow me on twitter and you can get directed to it from there um so please come and have a look and, and, and we'll show you what you're doing. Come say hello and talk, you know, Nemo's Fury or Jules Verne or Dan Dare or 2000 AD with me because I'm always up for a chat. Have a look in the show notes for this episode or on the website and you will find links to the uh, to Nemosfury.com and to the Facebook and Twitter for Chris and you can find out more about it and when it's going to launch. It sounds, sounds fantastic. Um, I look forward to the launch of it, Chris. Excellent. I shall make sure you know all about it. <laughs> great stuff well it's been great uh thank you for giving up your time this tuesday morning to talk about dan dare and to talk about dave gibbons um we've had a great time i think we've covered a lot of ground and it is um it is fantastic fun from those early days of the prog isn't it it is i, I honestly i please go on and, and and seek out this book it's great fun it's worth it for the art alone and the stories are fantastic and it's been a pleasure being here i'd like to come back and do it all again Come back again, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links, including links to all of Chris's projects, at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, on Mastodon and the 2080 forums, or email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to pick a book and come on the podcast yourself or for any feedback. And that will do us. Until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's a goodbye from me and... It's a goodbye from him. Wow. Wow.